What do you want? We want information. 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 Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs> Killed last week, along with cocaine kingpin Jose Rodriguez Concha, has been identified as another leader of the Medellin drug cartel. Pray, pray. Because the repression has been. They don't do it now. And our even if the sheriff's meeting is not governed by the ethics of the state, we'll gather inside. The show is faithful, faithful, Whatever mankind must undertake, free men must fully share. Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the invisible world aspects of the occult, and of course, of all the major religions of the world as well, as well as the philosophy of the elites, those people who control things in this world, the belief systems of these dark occultists who run things in this world. We're going to delve into a book here written by Mr. Manley P. Hall, one of the most celebrated occultists of the 20th century. And this book is titled The Sacred Magic of the Kabbalah. Kabbalah spelled with a Q in this rendition, of course. The Science of the Divine Names by Manley Palmer Hall. This is a second edition printing. Copyright April 30th, 1925. And this is actually a scanned copy of an old dusty book found in the University of Illinois Library at Urbana-Champaign that sat there for a good many, many years, and this was scanned in. And we have a copy of this today, thanks to this. You see, for as dangerous as these types of technologies can be for our future, they're also useful tools. We have access to many of these books and these works that we have never had before prior to the modern era here. And by modern era, I mean, I'm talking, if you go back 10, 15 years, a lot of this stuff you cannot find. You would not be able to find. You would need access to a good Masonic library or some such thing or a publishing company that handles those types of books to get a hold of this stuff. But now, thanks to the modern wonder, the modern wonder that is the internet, we have many of these things right in our hands whenever we want, and that's a handy tool for sure. There's a lot of good uses for the technology. Problem is, it's these type of people, these dark occultists who run things in their ilk, who control the direction that these technologies get taken. And that is where the problem lies. Not so much in the technologies themselves. They can be useful tools. They can do many wonderful things for mankind. But the people controlling their direction only have their own personal 
interests at heart and do not care about mankind as a whole. So that being the case, they steer these things in some awful directions. So for a little context here, Manly P. Hall, celebrated among the Freemasons, he also belonged to a slew of other secret society groups. He was highly celebrated as an occultist throughout many of the different occult fraternities, but primarily the Freemasons, this is where he's known. He's written a lot of things. If you could get any of his books, get a hold of any of his books, get them and read them. He certainly knew a thing or two. was a very intelligent guy, and he had a good grasp of a lot of this material and was able to make it understandable for your average reader. So that's, that's a good thing in and of itself, and his magnum opus, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, is a great book to have on hand, just as a reference guide. It goes a lot of different directions and doesn't go into the necessarily the full context of everything, but it is a good resource for anybody looking at this stuff to get a grasp of what it is that these people in positions of power in this world actually believe in the things they act upon and why they do the things they do. And tonight we're going to touch on that a little bit here. Like I said, this one is called The Sacred Magic of the Kabbalah. Kabbalah spelled with a Q, and there are distinctions in the spellings of the word Kabbalah. It's not all one thing. There are many different iterations of the word and how it's spelled, and they all have slight nuance in difference in meaning. And that's the important thing to keep in mind. So Kabbalah with a Q here. Perhaps we'll get a little inkling as to what differentiates this version of Kabbalah from the more traditional use of the letter K in the spelling of Kabbalah that we're more familiar with. Well, likely more familiar with. That's the one that gets most heavily touted in the mainstream by all of those people who confess to be Kabbalists, like Madonna and some of the other celebrities who like to utilize and implement some of the secret knowledge that they've gained through the study of the Kabbalah. And they like to flaunt it publicly, but this is the one that most people are familiar with, Kabbalah spelled with a K. That's the one that gets the most attention, but there are other subtle nuances, and we've covered a little bit of that on past shows here. But tonight, we're going to read into this book, and this book is going to give a pretty broad overview of things, give you a pretty basic description of what these secret society groups believe and they, what they believe about, well, the masses at large and themselves. And we'll see the distinction that they make here. So let's get right into the introduction here. The religious teachings of all nations may be divided into two general divisions. The first is the religion of the common people, and is the exoteric faith. The second is the religion of the wise and initiated few. This is the esoteric faith, and seldom, if ever, appears in the world without the cloak of ritual and symbol to conceal it from the uninitiated. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. The uninitiated, also known as the profane, to those in the secret society groups here. The common people, the profane, 
You see, they're not the wise ones. The wise initiated few, as he calls them here. Let's read on. The esoteric faith assumes the same position in connection with religions that the spirit holds in relation to its bodies. The bodies bear witness of the spirit. Through the spirit comes the life which animates and vitalizes the bodies. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Okay, so this is a little bit of profound philosophy being laid down right here now. So now he's saying this esoteric faith is actually more akin to the spiritualized version of religious teachings. This is the actual spirit behind religion. So according to what he's saying here, most of mankind, the common people, they just go through the motions of religion. They have this, this religion that they see on the exoteric level, which is just the base physical level here, and doesn't really attain to the spiritual. So the, the connotation being made here is there's nothing special or spiritual about this exoteric form of worship, as he calls it here. And that's why these people seem to think that, well, anybody that partakes in that is actually kind of foolish. This, this is what they think in these secret society groups. They think it's all just an illusion. And that the only way to practice the real religion or the esoteric religion is by practicing what they call soul science where they develop their soul and their spirit. And it sounds good and attractive, but it's all based on the same teachings of the Gnostics, the idea of Gnosis, where it's through secret knowledge that you acquire salvation and that you can transform yourself and eventually become God. That's what they teach. You will be God. But now he's making this connection here. So he's saying... That in the same way we could think of the human body, the body being a type of container or vehicle through which the spirit can witness, where we witness the spirit, it's the same thing with this connotation attached to the religious ideologies. So he says, through the spirit comes the life which animates and vitalizes these bodies. And now we're going to get into something a little bit deeper here on the esoteric level and on the philosophical level. And this is some important information, too, that you won't really hear an awful lot about unless you get deeply involved in some of these occult teachings. And like I always caution you, you do have to take this kind of stuff with a grain of salt, but I also think that there is a kernel of truth attached to much of these things in certain ways. So we have to keep that in our consideration as well. But once again, it's one of those notions where there's no way to really prove nor disprove anything that's being said here. We just take it upon the basis of the fact that this guy was considered an authority on this stuff and what he's handing us here was intended for members only, for initiates only. But that doesn't really mean anything because they're known to lie to their lower level members 
They even acknowledge it in their own writings. But that's beside the point. So, like I said, use your discernment. Take this stuff with a grain of salt. There might be some important connotation attached here or some kernel of truth with some of this. And that's why it's important to look at this and consider. So let's read on here because this next part tells you a little something about the esoteric. So he says, Through the spirit comes the life which animates and vitalizes the bodies. These bodies are often referred to as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the witnesses or recorders of the life of the spirit. Man's four bodies are the evangelists who go forth bearing accurate witness to the spiritual life that animates and gives power to them. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So notice he says man's four bodies, and each one is named after one of these evangelists in the Bible, the New Testament authors. The Gospels, the writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, these correspond in other teachings to what you would call, well, we're used to the physical material body. Then you have what they call the vital body, the etheric body, and the astral body, or some such combination. In the different teachings, the different groups may call these slightly different names. But there's this notion of we have these different bodies. We have this etheric body, this astral body, and this mental body. And they're all slightly they're called slightly different things in the different secret society groups and in the different occult fraternities. But they all teach the same things, and it's all the same principle involved here. So now he's referring to these as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So let's keep that in mind, and let's continue on and see what else he has to say. So he says, in a similar way, in a similar way here, these bodies that are often referred to as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the witnesses or recorders of the life of the Spirit, man's four bodies are the evangelists who go forth bearing accurate witness to the spiritual life that animates and gives power to them. So then he says here, in a similar way, the body, the body religious bears witness to the life spiritual. The world recognizes only the body, while the wise and initiated few study only the spirit. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's saying the world looks upon the body, but the wise and initiated few look upon the spirit. Study the spirit. And it's the same thing, the same connotation being attached here as well. We see man externally. From our points of view, we don't see inside. We don't see the spirit. We just see the body. And the same thing could be said of organized religion. We just see the body thereof. Of organized religion, we don't see the spirit thereof. And this is where the potential for deception can step into things because we only see the external appearance. So the same is true here. And he says that these people, well, they study the spirit. They study only the spirit. While the world itself recognizes only the body, these people claim that they recognize only the spirit. So he says, all concrete visible things belong to the world of effects. 
These are studied by the esoteric student only that he may discover through them the invisible cause. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we see the external appearance, the physical appearance is the effect, but there's a cause that lies behind it somewhere in the spiritual. That's the connotation being made here. And that we only study the physical side of things or look at this physical manifestation, the body, if you want to call it that, in order to get to the notion of the spirit. It's like looking at a reflection, and this is a hugely important idea. Man sees everything upside down and backwards. Everything in our reality is a reflection. It's a reflection of what the true nature of it is. And this is something that's largely understood by students of the occult. It's all a reflection, so it's all based upon this mirror-like idea, where we can see just the physical manifestation itself as a reflection of something spiritual, some spiritual-sided component. It aligns perfectly with the notion of Pluto, or Plato's cave and stuff like that, where you see the shadows, and largely mankind's just fixated on the shadows, not the light that's cast upon the actual body itself that causes the formation of the shadow. You see, you have just the physical effect. You see the shadows, the physical effect, but what's it the effect of? What's the cause of that? Well, it's the light behind the actual person or behind the object that casts the shadow. And in Plato's cave allegory, they don't see the object or the light cast on the object behind the object. They simply see the shadow and acknowledge the shadow. Well, it's the same kind of thing with this notion of reflection from the spiritual into the physical world here, into the body, from the spirit to the body. So that's what's getting... That's the point that's really getting shown across here. And, of course, this goes back. This predates the modern era quite a bit and predates a lot of these secret society groups, too. You see, like I said, there is a kernel of truth to a lot of this stuff that they do teach. And they do teach some good information. But it's always tainted with just that little bit of poison, and that's what you have to be wary of. And that's why I always caution you, take it with a grain of salt. Use your own discernment with these things, but... So Manly P. Hall here says that the esoteric student looks only at these physical effects to find the invisible cause. So he, they look at the visible only to find the invisible cause. True esotericists are students of Aristotelian reason, using the visible only as a means whereby they may know the invisible, studying the multiplicity of effects that may become mentally and spiritually aware of the unity lying behind the diversity in nature. Going to pause for a moment right there. Studying the multiplicity of effects or appearances so that they may, be, may become mentally and spiritually aware of the unity lying behind the diversity in nature. So we have this notion, once again, as they teach in these secret schools, that all reality and all manifestation here is nothing but God experiencing himself from multiple different perspectives simultaneously. And that all is one. And this is the kind of thing they teach in the secret schools. 
And I think a lot of it is a flawed ideology. I think we do have connection to God, the Creator, and I think we are interconnected in some very strange ways, but we are not all one and the same. See, this takes the idea of individualization or individuation out of the picture entirely. This all harkens back to the notion of collectivism, collective consciousness, hive mind mentality, that we're all one and the same, uniformity, unity, uniformity behind the diversity. So this takes free will out of the equation. When you, when you want to get down to the brass tacks of all of it, if it comes down to this reunification, this going back to source, as they try to claim here, that we're all one and the same, and it's only through the shedding of this outer garment and finding our higher self that we could reunify with the one mind. Well, you lose who you are in that sense. So it sheds off this notion of individuality. And that that is problematic in and of itself because we do have free will. And because we have free will, that gives us this individuation. And this is a gift from God. And it's one of the things that separates us from the rest of creation, the rest of what we know as creation, we should say. Animals operate by instinct by instincts. They have intelligence, but they're guided by instinct, not so much by free will, by the free will principle. And then, of course, we have the spiritual hierarchies, which are acknowledged by the secret society groups, and also, to some degree, by the Bible itself. We have this acknowledgement of these hierarchies of spiritual beings that have influences here. They also lack this free will principle, so, with that being the case, free will is something special, and not something to be lightly given up. And it seems to me like that's what the whole notion of all of this is. It's casting aside free will and becoming a part of the collective once again. This is the notion taught by the secret society groups. I think they're missing something. Something just seems off. I could feel something in my spirit, just doesn't resonate quite right with that notion that we're all just this little fractal image of God. We are created in God's image, but that does not make us one with God. And that's wherein things get a little sketchy, problematic. Now, I don't claim to have all the answers. I certainly don't. And I reserve the, be, the right to be wrong about all of this stuff, but it seems to me there's, there's something missing. There's a piece missing here to this whole puzzle. And they always teach about this return to oneness, this at-oneness, the universal one, this whole idea. And some of it stems back to Neoplatonic philosophy and things like that. But there are certain notions of it that just don't seem quite there, quite right. They don't seem to line up with what our experience is at many junctions. So that being the case, that's one of the notions pushed here heavily through all the secret society groups. But let's go ahead and we'll read on because he reveals more of their secrets here. So he says, 
Behind the veil which conceals the great unknown stretches the world of causes, the invisible side of nature. It is not given to man at the present time to understand the mysteries of this prototypal land. The veil of Maya, M-A-Y-A, which divides the world of men from their source, the world of God, is not really a structure or fabric, but is rather the line of limitation. The things that lie beyond the hypothetical circle which surrounds man are unknown because they are too attenuated and subtle to be recorded by the senses which the human race has thus far developed. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's talking about the veil, also referred to as Maya by some of the secret schools. The veil, the veil between worlds. This thing, this separation between man and God, this concept which separates man from God. The visible world from the invisible world of causation. Let's read on. This invisible world is explored only by a few hardy travelers who, striking out from the human race, dare all in their efforts to chart and map the great vistas of eternity. These daring ones are rewarded for their efforts by being accepted into the invisible. They become citizens of two worlds and are known as the initiates and masters. Only those who have gradually learned the subtle laws of the invisible nature are permitted to pass beyond the veil. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, here's another notion that needs to be taken with a grain of salt. There's no way to really prove nor disprove this. This, if somebody makes this claim, you kind of either have to accept their word on it or reject their word on it. They have no way of proving to you that they've been to the other side of the veil and know what they're talking about. No way to really prove that. No way to disprove it either. It's all taken on a basis of faith. But at any rate, these are the ones that they claim are the initiates and the masters. Let's read on. All of the arts, philosophies, and sciences which surround us in the material world are effects and doctrines concerning effects, for when they have become concreted or organized, or have reached that point where they can be grasped by the human mind, they have come across from the intangible to the tangible, and have assumed, to a partial degree at least, the veil of substance." They have taken on coats of skins, and in becoming one with men, have severed their connection with the infinite. As the body conceals the spirit, so within the soul shrine of every philosophy and religion is hidden a living, divine, glowing coal. This fiery radiance is the esoteric power, the spirit of every art and science. It is that part of the human being which still preserves its divine element. With the sword of true discrimination, man must sever the false from the true, the head from the body, the spirit from its sheath of clay. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now he's saying here that just as man has this spirit, this divine spark inside of him, every science, philosophy, and religion has a type of 
a spirit to it or this divine fire to it. This burning coal, this glowing coal, this fiery radiance, giving it some type of embodiment. So this would give all of these notions a spirit behind them of sorts. A spirit. Now isn't that interesting? Because these are like concepts that seem intangible. It's not something you could really touch and feel and know on a physical level here. We're talking about things like religion, philosophy, science, ideas. So these ideas have a spirit behind them, an intangible spirit behind them. That's what he's claiming here. And of course, they always use the allegory of fire and the flame. That's why they consider themselves the philosophers of fire. You see, they see this divine fire as being the essence, the spiritual essence, the causal factor of all things that emanates into manifestation here in the physical world of some sort. And it's always got this burning coal, this little ember behind it, this fire. And they describe it as such. And it's not always something that necessarily we see as a physical manifestation, but there's certainly a spirit behind it. So we have this notion of things, and of course, it goes beyond that as well. Let's read on, and we'll see what else he has to say here. Philosophy is a concrete exoteric study, but it conceals within itself occultism, the mystic philosophy of the soul. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now, listen carefully to what Manly P. Hall just said there. He said philosophy in and of itself is an exoteric or concrete study. It's a type of body. It's the embodiment principle of a thing, but it's not the spirit or essence behind it. And remember, he tells you the true esoteric student will seek for that essence behind the body, the spirit behind the body, and will only study the body to learn more about the spirit behind it. So that's what's being applied here and conjectured here. So he says that philosophy is the exoteric study of what he calls occultism or mystic philosophy of the soul. And that would be the spiritual side of it. So keep that in mind. So he says the former bears witness to the latter for both are one. The visible, tangible body is for the consideration of the materialist, and those who are wedded to form, while the invisible body is for the consideration of those few who can realize its existence because of particular training along the lines of mystic thought. The craft mason, with his geometry, conceals behind his exoteric rituals the geometry of natural law. Beneath chemistry lies hidden alchemy, waiting to give to those who can search out its depths the secrets of spiritual transmutation and the chemistry of life. Religion, as we know it, shields the path of the mystic, for it is unfolding gradually the ideals of service and brotherhood, which are the basis of true mysticism. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks, just to point out a few things. And like I said, Sometimes I think there's a kernel of truth or a core of truth to much of what they teach. 
You see, they do teach good information, but they also have it tainted with that little bit of poison, as always. So he's saying here, geometry. Geometry is the exoteric teaching of what the esoteric principle behind it is, and that would be natural law. He also says chemistry is the exoteric form of teaching that conceals the esoteric form, which is known as alchemy, wherein you'll find the spiritual transmutation secrets and the chemistry of life in alchemy, not in the body as chemistry, but in the spirit, alchemy. And now he's also saying here that religion shields the path of the mystic. So he's saying that religion is the exoteric or external form of a type of worship or relationship with God the Creator. And he says that the esoteric side of that is the basis of true mysticism. So let's keep that in mind. And like I said, I think there's a core of truth to some of that, but I think calling it service and brotherhood and true mysticism takes us off the path. I don't think that's the true nature of what should be the esoteric path behind the exoteric form of religion. You see, it should be about a right relationship with our Creator. That's what should truly be behind this exoteric notion of religion. It doesn't have to be religion. It's a type of spirituality. It's a spiritual path wherein you seek this proper relationship with your Creator. Not necessarily mysticism. You see, there's been a substitution made here within the secret schools. They're trying to substitute in some other notion for God the Creator. The seeking of mysticism or knowledge or gnosis instead of seeking out this relationship with our Creator. And I think this is where they get it wrong. Now, this is my opinion, based upon years and years and years and years of study and personal experience. And I do reserve the right to be wrong about all of that, and you are free to disagree with my assessment, if you'd like. But in my view, I'm just trying to give you what I see as what's true and right here. And I think that's the notion here. So this obfuscation here, whereas he says, religion shields the path of the mystic. I guess in a sense, if you call somebody who's seeking that right relationship with God the Creator a mystic, then I suppose that could kind of be a correct statement. But you see, it all depends on how do you define the term mystic or mysticism. What does that mean? Well, they've substituted this quest for knowledge or gnosis in place of this. And this is where sometimes it gets a little confusing. And this is where we get dealt off the path. There's even sub-branches of many of these teachings, and there is a sub-branch that 
delves heavily upon biblical context. Christian mysticism. So we have this notion of Christian mysticism as well. And there's some inherent flaws and fallacies in that notion of things too. That also leads people off the path in my view. So even though I think there is a kernel of truth to this, what you by and large find when you go searching down these roads and looking at what the secret society groups and the occult fraternities have to tell you about this, they lead you down this path towards what they call gnosis or enlightenment or illumination, this quest for knowledge where you can save yourself through knowledge. So it takes you off the path. And like I said, they do put out a lot of good information and they do give good information. But it's always tainted with that little bit of poison. And we see that here with how Manly P. Hall presented this. So religion, he says, is for the exoteric view, for the, the masses, you know, the, the, the foolish plebes out there, the unworthy ones out there, the unworthy masses, it's religion is that exoteric form that they seek after. And it's only in the esoteric, these enlightened initiates that have the inkling and they're seeking after this mysticism or this gnosis. And that's what they claim is the true notion behind things. And like I said, just to make the distinction, I think that's incorrect. What is important is seeking after a right relationship with God the Creator. So it's all about this connection, this relationship with our Creator. And that's what we should seek after instead of this gnosis. So they've taken people off the path here. By leading them in a good direction, by explaining things in a good way like this, because it's hard to dispute, yes, behind chemistry lies alchemy. Behind geometry lies the laws of nature. So also he's saying behind religion relies the path of mysticism. Well, behind religion should be the path to right relationship with God the Creator, not the path to mysticism. See, they, they put in substitutions of one thing for another. And, of course, all of this has to do with, well, let's face it, agendas and power grabs by select few people in this world. They wouldn't want to tell you you should seek after God, seek out God's will for your life. No, they want you to do what benefits them, these people in positions of power, these controllers at the top of the power structure, at the top of the secret society groups. They want you to do what is good for the group instead of what's good for yourself and your soul and what's good for God or what God would have you do or want you to do. They want you to usurp your free will to the group. So... The whole notion here is they've taken a side trail. And it's all about elevating themselves and keeping themselves entrenched in this power and leading people down a path that benefits them, not necessarily the people below them in the secret society groups. 
So that being the case, we see here, so he says this is the path of true mysticism. The basis of true mysticism. And I don't want to get too hung up on a side trail here. But the whole notion here is that they say knowledge is the path through which we find this true mysticism. Knowledge, gnosis, seeking this illumination, enlightenment. And what that has to do with is the elevation of the self to the higher self, the deification of the self, the elevation of the self to godhood. And that, that is not relationship with the creator. Because although we are created in the image of God, we are not God. And they teach that we are God or we can become God through the use of our intellect and through enlightenment, illumination, through initiation, through this process this training that they go through. And just as an aside for people out there listening, if you want to be able to use a tool of discernment that is a pretty good approximate tool to use to determine what's true and what's false, and this has been given us by the Bible Simply ask the question, does it, does it honor God or does it honor man? Any particular teaching that they give. So who ultimately is the one that's honored in the path of Gnosis? Well, it's man. Now, does that mean that it's bad to seek knowledge? No, it's not bad to seek knowledge. But that's not the path to get you there. It's a side trail to keep you ever digging further and further, looking for something that your spirit and your soul yearns for and longs for. But you'll never get there through intellectual development. And that's the key here. There's a certain wisdom in realizing that you can acquire all this knowledge, all this gnosis, could learn all these things, and it's not going to benefit you in the end. It benefits somebody else in the end. The person pulling your strings within the secret society groups. That's who. Now, you can acquire a lot of this knowledge on your own without going through the secret society groups and understanding some of the things they teach. Being able to apply discernment to those things to determine what's good food and what's poison. And you could understand a little better happenings in this world in that way by looking at these things that they teach. As long as you understand that the seeking after this knowledge, that's not going to fulfill that yearning in your heart for this right relationship with God. Because that's what every man inherently has within him. It's part of this divine spark that we have. It's that desire, and nothing will fulfill that desire, although people try to fill it, that fill that yearning with everything else. And it's not fulfilling. Anything else is not fulfilling. It's even the same with this knowledge. Because what you find when you start going down this road for gnosis or secret knowledge is you want more and more and more. And, of course, that person that's just above you within the 
power structure or the secret society groups that claims to have this further knowledge than you. They'll dangle that carrot before you and keep you walking ever down the path, doing the things they want you to do. You see, they, there's a reason they have people take blood oaths to join these secret society groups. It's not just, oh, <laughs> it's all part of a tradition. There's nothing to it. Tell that to William Morgan, <laughs> who was murdered by the Freemasons in the way prescribed by the oaths he took for revealing their secrets. So, you see, there's reasons for this, and it's all about maintaining their control and their power. Those at the centralized group at the top of the power structures. And there is a centralized group at the top of all of these different secret society groups. It's interlocked. This is what you would call the Illuminati in the modern era here. Certainly is. They go by many different names, though. But it's all the same centers of power that interact with all these different secret society groups. They're all interrelated and interconnected, and they all teach the same things, just slight variations on the same things. And they keep people chasing after this dangling carrot of secret knowledge. Secret powers. You can acquire secret powers. You can acquire supernatural powers. Powers like clairvoyance and astral projection and all of these types of things you can allegedly do. That's how they keep you walking down the trail. Make it sound attractive. If you're just good enough, if you just do what your teacher tells you, and you're devoted to it, and you give your all to it, then someday, maybe, if you're just good enough, then maybe you'll be able to acquire this power, or this ability. But you know what? It's a lie. You never get there, folks. You never get there. They just want you to think you can. There will be ones that claim to have those powers, but how do you prove something like that? How do you prove you have clairvoyance? And I'm not saying something like that doesn't necessarily exist. I think some portion of it does exist in some way, shape, or form. But these people in these secret society groups that tell you these things and try to give you this information and teach you this stuff, they're leading you down a trail down the primrose path because you'll come to understand as you get further and further along perhaps they're lying to you perhaps they themselves don't have these special abilities or the ones that they know above them that are alleged to have these abilities maybe they don't have these abilities and you're just never quite good enough so in order to hide the fact that you're just not quite good enough, you begin to lie about it too. Just so you can advance further in the order. This is how a lot of this stuff works. It's all based upon lies and deception, deceit, dishonesty. Even to their lower level members. They purposely tell them wrong interpretations of symbols and rituals and handshakes and everything else that they do. Admittedly, in their own writings, in their own words. So why would you trust these people? And this is the thing here. So we have Manly P. Hall telling us this stuff. Is it true? Does it make it true? Where did he learn it from? Did he really have any of these powers and abilities himself? 
Now, like I said, I do find oftentimes there are some kernels of truth to some of what they say. And I do find that there could be some good information mixed with it, but it's all suspect. You do have to take it all with a grain of salt and apply proper discernment to it. But at any rate, so not to belabor that point any longer, uh, we've paused there for quite a long time. Let's get back to it. So next he goes on and he says, The true student of music can never gain the full inspiration of his art until the attuned keyboard of his being registers the music of the spheres, for these are the eternal harmonies in nature. No artist has ever really learned color, no lawyer or physician his profession, until its hidden side has been understood and no student of modern religion can unlock his sacred books without the twofold key of the Kabbalah. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So now he's saying, no student of modern religion can unlock his sacred books without the twofold key of Kabbalah. And now you know why so many of these celebrities are so hung up on this notion of Kabbalah. But of course, the Kabbalah that Manly P. Hall is speaking of here is Kabbalah with a Q, not with a K, like we're more familiar with. And there's a distinction. And see, that's the thing most people who even would bother to look at or study Kabbalah don't know that there's a difference between the, the different subtleties with the different spellings. So they don't know what they're truly getting involved with. And they do overlap. Don't get me wrong. But it's not all the same notion or the same thing. And this is another thing where they get you. You see, there's an exoteric version of Kabbalah as well as an esoteric version. Much like they apply to the notion of religion, philosophy, science. Same thing can be applied to this Kabbalah. Kabbalah. So we have some more interesting ideals here to keep in mind as we continue. So let's go ahead and we'll see what else he says here next. The Bible, as it is studied today by the average Christian, is a sealed book. There are few who can read its meaning, for we can see and understand only those things which are already part of our natures. From the time of Moses, the Jews have preserved by oral tradition certain spiritual laws, certain mystic principles, which, when applied to the exoteric documents of Scripture, reveal to those capable of using them the unseen spiritual side and the wonders of the invisible nature. With these keys, a student may unlock many of the hidden places of religious philosophy and may unravel intelligently the complicated story of the gods, plural, he says here. The gods. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, the Bible, he says here. It's only if you have this Kabbalic key that you can unlock the understanding of what's really being said in there. Let's continue on. 
In the following pages are gathered a series of concise statements intended to give the student of the invisible path a few principles or foundation stones upon which to build a superstructure of personal experience and first-hand knowledge. By means of them, he may unravel the thread of existence and, like Alexander, cut the knot that the world has tried so long to untie. Life is the Gordian knot, wisdom the sword of quick detachment. According to ancient views, the veil between the false and true was composed of draperies of knotted cords and tassels. Each of these knots was placed in a peculiar position in relation to the others, and whoso can read the cipher of these knots can solve the Kabbalistic mysteries of the Jews. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's talking about cutting the Gordian knots with the sword of quick detachment to reveal the secrets behind the scriptures. And Kabbalah, he says, is the key to doing this. The Jewish mysticism. And of course, the Kabbalah we're speaking of would be the Kabbalah with the letter K when you're talking about the Kabbalah of Jewish mysticism. So why does he have a Q here? Why is he talking about it with a Q? Well, this has to do, in my estimation, in my view, and like I said, I reserve the right to be totally wrong about this, but this is just the inclination I get from having looked at many of these things for so long. The inclination I get is when they use the term Kabbalah spelled with a Q, this would be sort of the spirit side of the Kabbalah, the Jewish mysticism with the K. So this would be the esoteric version of that exoteric notion that we're familiar with as the Kabbalah of the Jewish culture with the K. So the one spelled with the Q is referring to that spiritual essence behind that. And there is a third type of Kabbalah, one spelled with a C. One spelled with a C, which is in my view, the core of any of these teachings of Kabbalah. But this one is specifically attached with Jewish mysticism that we're speaking of. And this is the one that has largely been adopted by many of the secret society groups, at least externally on appearance in the exoteric sense. And as I noted earlier, they are related and interconnected in many ways. But there are subtle nuances between all of them, these different forms of Kabbalah. So that being the case, we see here, because the next portion, talking about the sacred magic of the Kabbalah, spelled with a Q, it says, Keys of the Sacred Wisdom. So Kabbalah with the K, speaking of the Jewish mysticism, that's the one we're most familiar with, is derived from a term that means tradition, or the tradition. And when it's, when Kabbalah, spelled with a C, is taken back to its etymological roots, it means something totally different. It means of the horse. Kabbalah, with a C. And it's the same root word for caballo in Spanish, and the various other Romance languages. 
the horse. And there's a certain esoteric notion to that. But of course, we're talking about a cue here. And I haven't quite determined what the etymological root of Kabbalah with the Q would be just yet. I'm working on it, though. There is a distinction to be made, but uh, I think it has to do with this notion of sacred wisdom, whereas Kabbalah, with the K, being the exoteric version of a Kabbalah, is seen as the Jewish mysticism. This means tradition. So it's talking about an exoteric external tradition attached with this sacred wisdom spelled with the Q. So now that we've pointed that out and made that distinction, let's read on here and see what Manley P. Hall says next about this. So he says, The first point that a student must understand in studying the sacred sciences is that they will give him no powers or opportunities greater than those which he has prepared himself to receive by the life that he has lived. The daily life is the test of the student, and until he lives true to the laws of the mystic temple builders, he can never gain anything from the study of the Kabbalah, for the esoteric wisdom is not a series of intellectual facts, but a living spiritual thing which can be recognized only by those who live and think like it's itself. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So essentially what he's telling you here is... You see, your daily life, living your daily life under the same laws, being true to the laws and the notions of the mystic temple builders, this and this alone is the only thing that can help you to gain this esoteric wisdom of the Kabbalah. It's the only thing. So see, if you're just good enough, if you just listen to what your teacher says, and you're truly devoted, and you truly want it bad enough, then and only then, maybe, can you begin to understand some of this stuff. So he's already setting up the student for failure here, to expect failure, because it's only if you can live that lifestyle each and every day, day in and day out, with no wavering, with no setbacks, with no thoughts of, well, maybe this isn't right. Or maybe this isn't true. No doubts. Only then will you maybe be good enough to maybe understand this. And this is how they get people down this path. So you keep going along and think, okay, well, I'm not seeing any results. I just must not be good enough. I've been faltering. Like Sometimes I lose interest and I step away for a couple of days. Sometimes I falter, just like everything else in life. Do you ever get tired? I know I get tired. Sometimes I just got to put it down and walk away for a while. Sometimes I got to forget about it. I got to tune out. I got to zone out and, you know, maybe watch something stupid on TV to distract me for a while. Just to settle down, calm my mind, ease my mind. We get tired. Sometimes we waver in our interests in things. Sometimes we lose interest for a little while. So this is bound to happen with anything. So of course he's already setting people up for failure here by telling them that. That it's only through this unwavering faith and this unwavering adherence to the true laws of the mystic temple builders that you can get there. And only sometimes. <laughs> so, but at any rate... Let's continue on. So he says here, secondly, 
There is only one reward for those who seek spiritual unfoldment and extensions of power without first cleansing their bodies and their souls. The very powers which the student draws to him in his studies will destroy him unless he is robed in the garments of purity. Unto the unpurified, God is a consuming fire. For wherever there is dross in the nature of things, his power will burn it away. With the influx of the spiritual power, there is a great cataclysm in the body of man. And if he has not prepared it to the best of his ability to receive this light, obsession, insanity, death will result from his foolhardiness. For broken bodies, nerves, and minds follow in the wake of broken laws. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now he says, yeah, if you're not good enough and you try this, well, you're just, you'll destroy yourself. <laughs> Once the, the all-consuming fire power, all this influx of spiritual power comes into you, if you seek it and you're not worthy, well, then it'll destroy you. So this further keeps people guessing, moving along, like, is this really something I want to risk? Do I want to pursue this to its invariable ends that way? Am I good enough? And they hold themselves back then from seeking this stuff out because they have doubts. They have waverings in thought. So anyway, this is the whole notion of how they keep people under their thumb with this stuff. They convince them that it's just about there. It's just right beyond their grasp. They just have to study harder. They just have to adhere to the laws harder. They just have to listen to their teacher more and keep striving and keep on keeping on with all of this and be devoted to what the organization wants them to do. So let's read on here some more. So he says here, third, the student of the mysteries must learn to be patient. He must be prepared to strive for ages without reward, with no greater encouragement than that of the realization of a life work well done. The powers of the true mystic and the insights of a Kabbalist are not assumed, but are evolved by years and lives of unselfish service and by slow, certain self-improvement. There are no exceptions to this rule anywhere on the white path. So I'm going to pause for a moment here again, folks. So he's also telling you, chances are you're never going to see any results from any of this stuff. Not in this lifetime, but maybe in a new life. Maybe in your next life, when you're reincarnated, maybe then you'll see some spiritual evolution and some self-improvement there. And he says there's no exceptions to this rule on the white path. So only, only those seeking on the white path here is what he's talking about. There's no exception there. So this infers that there's something other than the white path, maybe the dark path or the black path, wherein maybe there's a shortcut to this and you can achieve some type of spiritual power in this life without having to go through the motions over and over again and seeing no results and maybe getting discouraged from that. So you see how they set people up. And the expectation of failure is there, and the expectation of no result is there. 
but just keep on faithfully doing this thing that doesn't work. <laughs> Maybe if you, it's the same thing that goes along with the, uh, we, we could, we could relate this to some other things in life. Like, let's look at our government system. Maybe if we vote harder this time, <laughs> then we'll see some changes, right? Keep on voting, regardless of what we see the result being over and over and over again. We get no result. We, we get nowhere, nowhere fast. Same type of a notion here. But let's continue on and see what else this tells us. So fourthly, he says, The ancient Kabbalistic magic of the philosophers had nothing to do with fortune-telling, divination, or the so-called arts of numerology, for such things were considered to be of the earth, earthy, and it was considered a prostitution to make these great spiritual things serve the human side of nature. Those who study the Kabbalah to find out their lucky days, the length of their lives, their birth paths, and so forth, are failures before they begin. They prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are not worthy or prepared to receive the guardianship of the sacred teachings, for man cannot know truth until he realizes the value of it, nor can he be wise while he seeks anything else but wisdom. So I'm going to pause once again for a moment there, folks. So he's saying, Kabbalah, it's not all of these things. And anybody who's seeking to practice Kabbalah for any type of earthly gain for themselves, well, they're just not worthy. And they're not prepared to receive the guardianship of these secrets. So all of these celebrities who go out there touting their their seeking of Kabbalah and all of this and trying to flaunt that in your faces and thinks that it gives them some type of, I don't know, sense of belonging to the big club or some such thing. Well, they're seeking it for the wrong reasons, and they're not going to have this wisdom, according to Manly P. Hall. So what's it for? It's for show, just like it is within the secret society groups. You'll notice they do everything in their power to ensure that just because you don't see results from it doesn't mean that it doesn't work, right? <laughs> so, but that, that's beside the point. Let's read on. So fifth, he says, The study of man can be approached successfully only by those who have attained the qualities of reverence and obedience. Obedience. Each must have one ideal as his guiding star. Each must study principles and not personalities. With simplicity of heart and clarity of mind, he must approach the great mystery. When man abuses his privileges or does not make use of his opportunities to understand nature's law for his being, he brings down upon himself unhappy karmic reactions. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So you see, the study of man, he says, can be approached successfully only by those who have attained the qualities of reverence and obedience. Obedience to who? Well, your teacher your occult fraternity, the Brotherhood. And he says that when man abuses his privileges or doesn't make use of his opportunities to understand nature's law for his being, he brings karmic reactions to himself, unwanted ones. And of course he refers to nature's law. 
nature's law, nature spelled with a capital N, denoting that nature in and of itself is God. Once again, a misnomer here. Nature is not God. God created the natural order in the natural world, but God is not nature. Nature is not God. God supersedes nature. God is greater than his creation. He sits above and outside of and throughout his creation, but he is not his creation. But you see these people deify nature as God in many instances here as well. But you'll notice he says that, well, if anybody abuses their power or their privilege, they, they reap unhappy karmic reactions. So they do recognize this notion of karma, of karma, of karmic retribution, as a portion of natural law. We could call it natural law because it is God's laws of nature, not nature's laws. Nature didn't write its own laws, folks. But that's the connotation here, nature's laws. Nope, natural law, you could call it natural law or God's laws of nature, but this is where we have some distinctions to make along with that. But let's continue on, because there's still more ground to cover here. So sixth, he says, The old Jewish rabbis taught that those who study the Kabbalah play with fire, and the student of today knows that this is true of all esoteric teachings. They are a two-edged sword. For that reason, the mystery schools demand years of purification and preparation, and the student of the ancient wisdom must, without hesitation, accept the obligations if he desires the illumination. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Let me repeat that last portion again. So, the, the student of the ancient wisdom must, without hesitation, accept the obligations if he desires the illumination. And, of course, what obligations are we speaking of? Well, he must adhere to the rules of his teacher and of the brotherhood. And he must do what they want and swear his fealty to the brotherhood and not to not to reveal their secrets to any outsider or profane out there. You see, they take various blood oaths throughout the different degree systems of these secret society groups. They swear blood oaths not to reveal the secrets of the order. And they swear allegiance and fealty, and if you desire the illumination, well, you have to do what you're told. Didn't we lay that down in the last portion here where he talks about obedience? Obedience. Are you beginning to see yet how this is all just a setup for a control system? It's a system to control the human mind on many different levels within the fraternity as well as outside the fraternity. perhaps even more so inside the secret order, the secret fraternities. Let's go ahead and continue on. So he says, seventh here, 
The curiosity seeker or those searching for thrills can never gain the sacred truth or fathom the secrets of the ancient Hebrew. The same is true of those who study magic only that they may gain from it powers by means of which they hope to take advantage of less informed people. Who searches for wisdom in order to gain temporal power can never secure the true spiritual light. All who follow such courses are disciples of the Black Path. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this was inferred earlier when he was talking about the White Path. There's the Black Path. So all people who are searching for wisdom in order to gain temporal power can never secure the true spiritual light. So he says all that follow such courses are disciples of the Black Path. Well, what can we find out about this black path? These are the people that want to take the shortcut and want to have worldly power now. And, of course, they always present themselves, all of these occultists within these occult fraternities, these secret society groups, the ones that write books like this, they all present themselves as being, well, we're part of the white path. We're the good guys, we didn't get into this for seeking worldly power over others or anything like that. But that stuff does exist. There's this, this black path, you see. But we avoid that and we teach people not to go down that because that just ends in disaster. You see how they always try to position themselves and they, they always say, the black path. Well, yes, there's some bad apples in that get involved with this stuff and sometimes they take advantage and they use their powers and privileges for their own advantages, but we would never do that. We're the good guys. We're only teaching you the good side. You can't have any of the true spiritual light that way if you follow the black path. You see, it's always just this more, this other carrot to dangle in front of you. So if you're one of those people that gets involved in one of these occult fraternities like this because you're interested in worldly power, well, they're just telling you, well, you'll never achieve the true spiritual light unless, of course, you do what I tell you because I'm on the white path and otherwise you're on the black path. So you'll do what I say and then maybe you could acquire more power. And they keep dangling those carrots before you and keep you running on the treadmill. That's what happens in these occult fraternities, secret society groups. So let's see what else he says here. Eighth, he says, Only students actuated by the highest motives and purest ideals can hope to gain true knowledge of this great science, which instructs concerning the secrets of the soul. Not until the seeker, after spiritual illumination, so lives, that he proves by his thoughts and actions his right to receive the celestial knowledge, will the keys of the sacred sciences, the silver key of the old and the golden key of the new Kabbalah, be entrusted to him. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the silver and the gold key... To the gates, the silver gate and the golden gate. And that should give you a hint about what certain landmarks in this world and in this country have been named after. But at any rate, that's an aside for another day. But uh, So it's only 
Not until this seeker after spiritual illumination lives and proves by his thoughts and actions that he gets his right to receive this key to the celestial knowledge. How does one prove one's thoughts to some other person? How do you prove your thoughts? <laughs> Think about that. Thoughts and actions. Who are you proving it to, and what exactly are you trying to prove? That's the other thing here. So you see how it gets all, all tangled up. But it's then and only then that these keys, this double-edged key, these two keys, the silver key of the old and the golden key of the new Kabbalah, can be entrusted to him. You see, there is an old Kabbalah and a new Kabbalah. Also, there, there's always more layers to these different connotations of things that they give in these secret schools. And it's the same thing. It's another carrot to dangle in front of you to keep you chasing after it. After more knowledge, more gnosis, thinking that it's fulfilling when it's not. It won't fulfill you. Don't get me wrong. It's not bad to know things, and it's not bad to seek knowledge about things. Nothing wrong with that at all. The more you know, the better off you are. They, they do say knowledge is power, and rightly so. Knowledge can be power, but it's only when it's wielded with wisdom that it can be power. Or when it's used wisely or rightly, that it could be effective. Oftentimes people misuse it and do bad things with it. It still gives them a type of power, but ultimately the path leads to destruction. When used wrongly, when you use knowledge wrongly. And of course they, they do tell you that in these secret schools, but what they don't tell you is that they do misuse it most of the time. But let's read on. That's, that's an aside for another time. So ninth, he says here, Man must cease trying to mold the universe into his own desires and chain God's laws to temporal ends. He must realize that the wise man molds himself into the divine plan and instead of drawing God and wisdom down to himself, rises through the seven heavens like Muhammad ascending to the footstool of divinity, going to pause for a moment here folks now herein lies another one of their inversions their inversion principles what he's telling you here is the opposite of what they really do and teach when they get to the higher levels you see they're not about man trying to cease to mold the universe into his own desires they're, they do the opposite. They do try to mold the universe into their own desires and their own will. In fact, there's been entire, entire occult fraternities founded upon these ideals. Entire religions. New religions. This would be part of your new Kabbalah with the golden key, in case you were interested. Founded based upon these types of ideals. One by one, Mr. Aleister Crowley, along with George Cecil Jones, founded the religion known as Thelema, which loosely translates as the will. Do as thou will is the whole of the law. And of course, we have this notion just gets totally inverted in that. 
So it's not about man ascending through the seven heavens, as said here, and seeking to align his own desires with God's laws to temporal ends. It's about the full-spectrum dominance of this creation and the usurpation of God, God's power and dominion here. And it's about this inversion principle, completely inverting this reality into a wholly artificial system built by man, which he thinks can be better than the natural order built by God. That's what they truly teach at the top ends of these secret fraternities. Of course, they keep people going down the road earlier on through their training, thinking that they're seeking the right side, that they're on the good side. And oftentimes, when and if people realize they're on the bad side, it's too late. There's no getting out now, and they got to keep their mouths shut. Or at least that's what they would want you to believe, and that's false too. There is a getting out. There is a way to break away from these secret groups. It can be done. But that's a subject for another day. Let's continue on because there's a little bit more I want to cover here before we sign off and we're running low on time. So 10th, he says here, the student must realize that a balanced mind to check their emotions and a harmonized body to manifest both are essential to an understanding of a teaching which is harmonious and balanced. Only those who have been faithful unto little things can ever hope to be given the sacred scepter of divine power, which makes them masters over greater things. Gonna pause there. So, of course, it's about balance and harmony. You see, it's all about this balance notion. You balance your good works with your bad works, or your bad works with your good works. And it's only then, through the natural balance here, that you can ever hope to have any type of divine power or mastery over greater things. It's keeping your balance. All about balance with these people. Not about doing what is good and right all the time. Nope, just make sure you have a balance of good with all the bad you do. Not about seeking to better oneself in that regard. It's not about that. After after a certain amount of time, they believe that they're beyond morality or ethics of any sort. That that stuff's beneath them and that they are no longer bound by that, even though it is a portion of God's natural law that he put into place here. But that's a subject for another day, too. Let's continue on. A little bit more ground I want to cover before we sign off. Eleventh. In the Hebrew alphabet, consisting of 22 letters, are the elements of Kabbalistic knowledge. Each of the letters is composed of tiny flames joined together in various formations to produce letters. The number of flames to each letter ranges from 1 to 4. It is with the letters of this flaming alphabet that the student of the Kabbalah is first concerned, for they are the basis of a great fireborn doctrine. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Are you beginning to see the fixation on the notion of fire? Fire. Once again, they do refer to themselves as the philosophers of fire, and they have various notions that they believe for this. 
why they cite themselves as such. And this is said to be one of them. And it does have to do a lot with some of these Kabbalic traditions. And, of course, the, the letters, the Hebrew alphabet. And this is an important thing, especially to the Masons. The 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But let's continue on. A little bit more here to cover before we sign off. Number 12, it is said by the ancient Jews that it was with various combinations of these flaming points that Adam named all things, well, in the garden of the Lord. The student of occult philosophy realizes that all things have a true name, which is their eternal word, and also a form or material name, which changes with their manifestations. All of the true names are based upon various combinations of Yod, the great fire flame. Yod is the primitive figure or hieroglyph of the Hebrew alphabet. It is the name of the independent fire flames which gather together to form the 22 letters. Masons have accepted this symbol as that of God. It is also the first letter of the Hebrew name Jehovah. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Yod. Yod. Y-O-D. Yod. So you see here, there's a lot of important connotations being attached here with this last portion, of course. So he says, the student of occult philosophy realizes that all things have what they call a true name, which is their eternal word, and also a form or material name, which changes with their manifestations. And it says, all of the true names are based upon various combinations of Yod, the great fire flame. Yod. Yoda. You ever wonder what Yoda meant or was all about? Of course, this is a great fire flame. The true name of the master. And of course, Yod being inferred in Yahweh or Jehovah. And we have this letter, of course, is inherent in what's called the Tetragrammaton. And this is the unpronounceable name of God. And it is said to be attached to the true name of God. And see, here's the other portion of the teaching here. And a lot of people may not realize this is actually a thing, but of course, Manly P. Hall says here, the student of occult philosophy realizes that all things have a true name, which is their eternal word or name that goes with them. But see, if you know what their true name is, that gives you control or power over them. That's one of the hidden secrets, allegedly, in the occult. That's one of the things that was said about Solomon and building his temple. You see, according to the occultists' traditions, Solomon had a magic ring in which he was able to summon and control 72 different demons to build the temple. And the reason he could control them is because with this ring, he was also given the knowledge of their true names, and therefore he could command them as such. And this type of a notion goes on through a lot of the different secret teachings of this stuff. So this is an important connotation to Kabbalists in particular, the notion of true name, the true name. And everything has a name. And of course it does say here that Adam named all things in the garden of the Lord with the various combinations of these Hebrew letters and the 22 Hebrew letters. And this is one of the important things to be said here too. And this ties back through this Kabbalistic tradition 
this notion of these Hebrew letters being an important distinction thereof. And you'll notice, if you go back and you look at some of these old Hebrew letters in the, their alphabet system, they don't have any vowels. Therefore, mispronunciations were quite a common thing for people that weren't familiar with the language. And that's why we have so many different ways of referring to God or Yahweh or Jehovah in this different way because of the various inflections and vowel sounds you could put between these consonant letters here, these Hebrew glyphs that were given of this tetragrammaton, the four letters that spell out the name of God, the true name of God, the unpronounceable name of God. And nobody is said to know what the true pronunciation is, except for maybe a select few in the cult tradition where they would know this. So that being the case, we could see that uh, what's said here in some of the occult traditions, it's an important notion, this whole notion of the true name. But let's go ahead and get on with the reading here, and we're going to wrap it up here real soon. So he says here next, 13th, he says, These fire flames represent living forces among the creative hierarchies, which we know as the vitalizing or life-giving forces of nature. Various combinations of these celestial creatures differentiate and vivify all of the forms which we see in the material world. All differentiation is the result of various combinations of spiritual energies which cross and recross at different angles according to the receiving poles and centers within the evolving life. The various combinations of these forces in the invisible world spell out the archetypes of bodies, and these bodies become the consonants of the Hebrew alphabet. going to pause for a moment here, folks. The body, so you see how in the Hebrew alphabet the, the body notion is spelled out through the alphabet of course it's missing the vowel sounds well the vowel sounds in this notion would relate to the spiritual side thereof and this is why it becomes a hugely important thing in the pronunciation of the true name of god the tetragrammaton or the true name of anything in particular and giving the power over that so it says here, the vowel points, which were never written by the ancient Jewish people because they represented divine elements and were too sacred to be symbolized upon paper, represent the life centers which animate and give expression to the consonants or forms. In the same way, the whirling vital centers in the human body are the invisible causes which lie behind our visible bodies. As there are seven vital centers, so there are seven vowels, but as two vowels... W and Y, are at the present time only partly used, so certain spiritual centers are latent under certain conditions at the present time. As no word can be formed without vowels, so no body can be built of consonantal elements alone. Every body must have its unwritten but sounded and admitted life element. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we see some of the symbolism involved here. When you have this notion of an alphabet with all consonants and no vowels, well, the vowel has to be added in to give it that life element in order to make it a pronounceable word. And we see here in our English language, he points out that there's seven vowels. And this is a, a 
a much lost thing in the modern time. We're familiar with A-E-I-O-U, and I'm sure those of us that are a little bit older have been taught sometimes why. You might remember that. But I also remember sometimes W was considered a vowel in certain words. But that is kind of an archaic thing in the modern era now. That's something that kind of began to disappear out of the teaching in the public schools in the 1980s. W as a vowel. Only part-time used as a vowel, much like Y. So this is an interesting notion that he puts here, too. And, of course, there's seven. Seven. And that's the important thing. And a lot of this has to relate relates to the spoken word and the written word. And there are distinctions to be made here. So he says the vowel points and their sounds, colors, and forms were grouped together by the ancients as the spirits before the throne and composed the unspeakable name of the unknowable God. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So just what I was telling you about all along there. He also says, according to the Jews, there were two great worlds. The higher or superior world was called the macrocosm. And in its rules, the divine man, macroprospis, the lower world, or the lesser sphere, was called the microcosm, or little cosmos. And in it ruled an emanation of macroprospis, known as microprospis, or the lesser reflection of the greater. Man made in the image of his father, the great man, or Adam Cadmon, the archetype, contained both the nature of the human, or lower, and nature of the divine, or higher. In order to understand nature and God, these philosophers taught that man must unravel the mystery of his own being, which was made in the shadow of God, and find the sacred meaning of the twenty-two hieroglyphic letters and the vowel points as they play out their drama in spirit and substance. And I think we're going to end it right there tonight, folks. So you see, once again, this notion, the macrocosm, relating to God, or also known as Adam Kadmon in some of the old Kabbalistic traditions. And this is not congruent with who we would consider God the creator in the Christian faith or the same type of ideology. But you see how they point out this notion, the macrocosm and the microcosm, as above, so below, man being a reflected image of the nature of God. And you see... Man made in the image of his father, the great man, and we are the lesser man, according to that. So you see, there's some notions of truthfulness inherent in some of it, but there's also a little bit of poison in there as well. And you have to wonder How much of this has a ring of truth to it? And like I said, I do think there are some true things being told. And there is some good that can be garnered from these teachings, and that's why we explore them. But it does require a little bit of discernment, because there's always that little bit of poison in there. So you could ask yourself, does it honor or glorify God, or does it honor or glorify man? If you're looking for a tool for discernment, as to whether a thing is a good or a faulty teaching. And you can apply that to these various notions and make some discernments on your own. But at any rate, 
this is what we're talking about with this notion of the invisible world. There's this world of causation in spirit, this spiritual side, that causes manifestation in the visible side here. So the invisible being manifest as something visible here. And this is some of the philosophy behind that. And I do think there are some true elements to this philosophy, as well as some things that kind of miss the mark. And it's something we need to consider and look at here. So we have all of these elements being taught within the secret schools. And oftentimes, they can be used to misdirect people, seeking after knowledge in place of seeking after God. And you're not going to find what you're looking for with this knowledge because it never ends. They keep you running down the trail further and further and further where you never get quite to the heart of the truth of the matter. You never do by seeking knowledge. And they keep you running on this hamster wheel over and over again and fulfilling whatever it is that the agendas that they want done are. And you go along to get along with it when you get involved in this stuff. And it usually ends badly for people. But they don't realize it. They think they're doing good. They think they're doing right. They think they're on the right path. But usually it doesn't end well for them. And that's the, the true nature of it, because it's based in deception. And that's where the problem lies. But uh, at any rate, we have this notion that perhaps the causation of things that happen in this world doesn't necessarily follow in suit with a physical cause and effect sequence. There may be a spiritual cause that underlies all of these things, and I think that may be the true nature of our reality. Something starts out in a spiritual-type place to begin with and gets reflected here in the physical material world. And that's wherein we can have some discernment of things by recognizing that there's a spirit behind many of these things. And including included in that would be notions like our modern science. There's a spirit inherent there. And Rudolf Steiner called this spirit Ahriman. I would call it Antichrist behind this notion we have today of science. Science has become the new religion, folks, of our age. And it's misleading people and guiding people in the wrong directions, in my view. But anyway, food for thought tonight. Food for thought, ladies and gentlemen. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. What do you want? We want information. 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 Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. Killed last week, along with cocaine kingpin Jose Rodriguez Concha, has been identified as another leader of the Medellin drug cartel. Pray, pray, because the repression has been. They don't do it now. And our evenness to share its meaning is not governed by the ethics of others. We go in the faithful, the faithful, the faithful, because whatever mankind must undertake, free men must fully share.